Today on the Almond Journey podcast. I know the Almond Board has a place where they have links to these different uh, websites and different services, but you really have to go out and do some research. There's help out there and there's money out there if you go out and, and look for it. Almond grower and retired Air Force officer Alec Earl joins the show. Welcome back to the Almond Journey podcast brought to you by the Almond Board of California. On the show, we discover how growers, handlers, and other stakeholders are making things work in their operations to drive the almond industry forward. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich, and I'm traveling up and down the valley, virtually in this case, to feature the leaders who are finding innovative ways to improve their operations, connect with their communities, and advance the almond industry. Today, we head down 99 to Merced, California, to visit with almond grower and retired Air Force officer Alec Earl. Alec and his wife each spent over 30 years in the Air Force, first in active duty, then civil service. Then in 2014, they bought 20 acres in partnership with his wife's sister and her husband to form ENS Farms LLC. New to farming almonds at that time, Alec used the skills he had developed in the military to research extensively and organize his small orchard to operate at peak performance. We're going to talk today about how he's fine-tuned his irrigation program and tapped into grants to buy equipment and improve his orchard efficiencies. To kick things off, I asked Alec to explain what prompted him to get into the business of growing almonds. My wife and I decided, you know, we wanted to go into business with her sister and her husband. Uh, My wife's father retired from Castle Air Force Base. So her whole family stayed in the kind of the Merced, the San Joaquin Valley area. So the four of us wanted to go into business. And so we looked at almonds, we looked at pistachios, we looked at a couple of things, and we just felt like almonds were the, the best fit for what we wanted to do. We also travel quite a bit, so we were only going to be here part-time, and they were going to live here full-time. So we needed something that the four of us could do, and I can do remotely because I'm sort of the the CFO of the company. So I pay all the bills. I do a lot of that online. And then when I'm in town, we you know actually work in the orchard. But to get to your point, at first we started looking at established orchards. And this was 2014. We couldn't really find anything that we liked because the orchards that were for sale were old. Almond prices were high at the time, as folks probably remember. So, of course, the prices of almond orchards were high. The ones that we looked at were older orchards. Uh, They didn't have really good records. So we couldn't really tell what the production was. We couldn't really tell how the trees had been initially planted. Because when you're putting in an orchard, you know, it's a 20 to 25 year investment. So all the preparation you do up front, even though it's expensive, you've got to live with that for the next 20 to 25 years. So we decided it would be better to go ahead and try and find a piece of land and then start from scratch because then you know what you have. So we looked around, we found a piece of land that that seemed to fit our requirements, the the price seemed to fit our budget. So we purchased the land and then we started the process of preparing the land for almonds. Now, a lot of people in farming are either born into it or spend their career in it. And by the time they get to the point of owning and managing an orchard, they have years of experience under their belt. 
But for Alec and his business partners, they relied on their skills from the Air Force of project planning and execution, budgeting, and a whole lot of research. Well, we did quite a bit of extensive research. So first of all, we looked at all the UC Davis studies that are out there, and there's plenty of them that talked about how to put in an almond orchard, what the costs were. So we were very interested in costs, and we wanted to make sure that we had that right because uh, we're pretty much self-funding this operation. We were trying to do it without any, any loans on the operational side. So we wanted to make each dollar that we expended work for us as much as possible. You know, we looked at the, the Almond Board of California. We went to the Almond Conference and talked to folks and asked them what types of trees they put in. What type of tree spacing? You know, who do they deal with when it comes to the PCA aspect of it to make sure that you've got a, a good PCA? One of our biggest folks that helped us out was uh, the almond doctor, David Dahl, who many folks will know. Now, keep in mind, we bought this farm in 2014 and we planted the almonds in October of 2015. So we're, we're talking about six years ago. So we spent a lot of time with Dr. Dahl. He came out to our, our orchard, or at the time it was a, a dirt patch, and came out and gave us a lot of good advice. You know, we went out and dug pits on the, the property to make sure that the soil was adequate for almonds. We had soil testing done to make sure that it was adequate. So he helped us immensely. He came out several times and, and gave us a lot of good advice. A lot of the other almond farmers locally also, you know, talked to us again about spacing, about the types of trees. Again, in 2015, the independence variety was just really starting to take hold in the valley. And we were interested in that variety. But at the time, there was a long, long waiting list of buying trees. And then they were also selling them at a premium. And on top of that, there wasn't a lot of history with the independence variety. So we opted to go with uh, Nonpareil Monterey mix. And, uh, you know, we did that because of the money that uh, a Nonpareil will make for you. And uh, the Monterey's are uh, quite a vigorous tree and, and have a pretty large production when they're full grown. So we looked at both of those and opted for that mix as the best one for, for our particular situation. No, I think the variety selection is a good starting point. What about irrigation at that point? How were you thinking about irrigation before you even planted trees? So with irrigation, the soil that we have is a very heavy clay soil with a fairly high pH. Also, in our particular situation, we were at the end of a private ditch that had about, uh, it was probably over a mile for the water to travel from an MID valve. We use Merced Irrigation District, so the water had to travel over a mile to get to us through ditches that were not well-maintained because, again, it's a private ditch. So our initial investment was in a well, so we were able to drill a well. And so for the first six years up until now, we have been using well water. So we use well water. Uh, we opted to go with a, a micro-irrigation system. Again, we looked at both drip and micro, and we decided on micro because it gives a little more even distribution of water. You can see where your water patterns are, and 
they take a little more maintenance, but by the same token, again, the cost benefit, it seemed to be a better solution for us. Interestingly enough, several of our neighbors who are close by all put in drip systems at about the same time we put our orchards in. And then a year or two later, they came in and put a micro on top of their drip system because the drips were not working for them in the heavy soil. So the benefit is they have both systems that they could use, which helps during harvest and things like that. But it's a significant added cost that we did not want to go through. So pretty much we, we use a micro system. It's well water right now, so high pH. So we have to run acid. We also run uh, solutionized gyp through the system as well. So that's our current situation. Now, this year, we are connecting to an MID canal that's at the south end of our orchard. And uh, we just finished the first phase of the project, which was connecting to an MID irrigation box. And then we will be able to get water from the south end of our orchard up to the north end of our orchard. And hopefully this year, we will put in a set of filters, sand filters, and a booster pump so that we can then irrigate with MID water. So we'll have both well water and MID irrigation water, which is good to have both of those, especially as we move forward with all the issues in California with irrigation and climate change and things like that. Sure. And let's talk about kind of how you're handling irrigation scheduling. I know that you've been using the pressure chamber. Can you maybe talk through your process as far as answering the uh, the when, where, how much questions of irrigation? Absolutely. So with regards to irrigation, we currently have a, a kind of a multifaceted method for doing it. We have a company that comes out right now once a week, and they do a, a moisture reading with a neutron probe. And then they will send us a, a report that shows us down to the five-foot level how much water we have in our soil. And so we use that as a baseline. And then what we also use is last year we bought a, a pressure bomb or a pressure chamber. Previous to that, we had had the almond board actually come out once a year or so and do a pressure chamber reading for us. So for a couple of years, we had them come out just prior to harvest to do a pressure chamber reading for us. And we really saw the value of being able to know exactly what the water content was in the trees and how much water the trees were using. So last year we purchased a pressure chamber. It's the pump-up pressure chamber, which is the, the less expensive one. It's still $1,500 versus $3,000 or $3,500. So, but we bought a pump-up pressure chamber. So now we'll go out in the summer about once a week, and then uh, I will take uh, readings in all four corners of the orchard. I'll do one of each type of tree, one nonpareil, one Monterey in each of the four corners, and I'll come up with an average pressure bomb reading. And then that I take along with uh, the information from the neutron probe. And then on top of that, I've spoken with the Stanislaus County Farm Advisor, and he sends out a weekly report that explains how much water almonds used the previous week and what the projection is for the next week. So that is another really useful tool. And it's just a matter of getting on his email list, and they, they send it out once a week. So you know that, you know, last week, on average, for the the SEMA stations that they use, which are uh, we we use the Merced SEMA station, 
Uh, they use a couple of different SEMA stations, but it's Stanislaus County. It's not that far away, so it's pretty close. So it gives us a, a baseline, and then we can take all of that information and decide about how much water we need to irrigate for a week. The interesting thing that we found, Tim, was that when we were just doing the neutron probe, we got a water profile, so we were trying to maintain the soil moisture based on that profile. Once we went to the pressure bomb, we found out our trees were still slightly stressed, so we weren't putting enough water on them. So we actually had to increase the amount of water based on the pressure bomb that uh, was telling us that, hey, your trees are still stressed and you need to still put more water on them, even more than what they were recommending from the soil moisture monitor. So it's good to have more than one perspective. I mean, we would also take an auger out from time to time and an auger down and check and see what the soil moisture was down, you know, a couple of feet down. But that's pretty labor intensive and uh, it's a lot of, lot of work. So uh, we opt most of the time to use the soil moisture sensor data, use the pressure bomb data, use the data from Stanislaus County Farm Advisor. Right. And so did you notice any difference in, in yields as a result of kind of upping that irrigation so that your trees weren't as stressed? I know yeah. we're talking different years, and so it's, it's hard to compare yeah, apples and oranges. It, it, it really, we're, we think this year will be a better year for us this upcoming year. Two years ago, our yields were a little higher than they were last year, even though we added more water. We think part of the problem may have been is initially when we put our, our micro system in, we put in uh, spinners that threw water out far enough to actually wet the trunks of the trees. So we were starting to get into a little bit of an issue where we were getting some band canker on some trees. Our PCA thought that part of the problem might have been that the tree trunks were wet, therefore the, it encourages the growth of the band canker and that type of thing. So we went to a different spinner head last year, which threw out a, a smaller wetting pattern so the tree trunks would not get wet. But then there was also some some root zone area that was not getting enough water. We think, we think that was the issue. So we put on more water, but the trees might not have liked the fact that, hey, the whole root zone didn't get wet. So our, our yield last year actually went down a little bit. So this winter, we're going back and putting back in the, the original sprinkler heads that we had, and we're just gonna live with the, the issues that we, we have if we have a little bit of band tanker. We'll just, we'll deal with that as we go forward. So. We think that, we hope, and again, this is all part of the, quote unquote, the science and the, the art of, of farming is we, we think it will be a better solution for us. Between that and eventually when we start using MID surface water, that will be better for the trees as well. So you try something, that's a, the challenge with this is you try it. If it doesn't work, you go back to another method or you, you start over again or you try something new. So. Our yields aren't where we want them to be. Our trees are, we just had our sixth leaf. Uh, we're probably just slightly below average for, for that. Our tree spacing, by the way, is which I did not mention was we're 21 and a half feet wide and 16 feet between the trees. So I think kind of average for tree spacing. We, you know, we know newer orchards are planting them very, very close together, but they're uh, different varieties like an independence variety or something like that. Just one follow-up. So for you, 
why is it still important to get the soil moisture if you're getting the pressure chamber regularly? Well, it gives you a different perspective on your orchard. So, for example, in our orchard, we have a heavy clay soil, but we have two different types of heavy clay soil. And having the soil moisture just gives you another reference point of how you're doing with regards to irrigation. So we have the soil moisture probe in what we think is the drier part of the, the orchard so that we can manage that. Uh, and then we take the pressure chamber readings in all four corners of our orchard, and ours is our rectangular orchard. So, I mean, if you could only have one, then I would tell you probably the pressure chamber is the best way to do it because then you could just use a hand auger and go out and check the soil moisture. But but you want to know what's going on down at the three-foot level because if you irrigate on a certain day, again, depending on the soil you have, we have a heavy clay soil, it takes a while for that water to get down to the two and the three-foot level in a heavy soil. In a sandy soil, it you know goes through pretty quickly, so you have a different issue. So every orchard is different and has its own unique set of circumstances. And I would tell you that the more information you have, the better off you are. Whether you use it or not is a different story, but if you have it, at least you've got some reference points. Great. Thanks for giving the background there. So we already talked about kind of like the irrigation and the varieties. As you were projecting your expenses over the next 20, 25 years, which has got to be difficult to do, how did you think about equipment? Like what equipment do you absolutely need that, that makes sense for an orchard this size versus what makes sense to maybe, you know, hire someone to custom come in and, and do it for you? Okay. So equipment, uh, it's interesting because what we did, of course, the, the first thing we bought, believe it or not, was a backhoe. And my wife and I kept scratching our head going, well, do we really need a backhoe? And my brother-in-law said, you know, we really need one of these because of all the different types of work we're going to do on the farm. So we finally went out and we bought a, uh, an old beat-up case backhoe. And it served us very, very well for the, the last six years. I mean, we've used it on any number of projects, putting in pipelines, demolition, uh, ripping out trees, putting in new trees. So that was the first piece of equipment we bought. And, and the property itself had a lot of junk on it and a lot of uh, old beat up you know, buildings and all sorts of things. So we used the backhoe to help clean up the property. And you know, I will be the first to admit that it was probably the best piece of equipment that we, we purchased because it's paid for itself many, many times over. So that was the first thing we did. And we bought, because of our budget, you know, we bought all used. You know, we went on Craigslist and looked around and bought something that we felt would, would work for us. So we bought the backhoe first. And the second thing we bought was a, an old New Holland tractor. And then from there, uh, we bought a, a used a ground sprayer. We paid someone to come in for a while to do the ground spraying for us. And when I say ground spraying, I mean the, not the air spraying, but the ground portion of it. So that was the, the next piece of equipment we bought was that because we could control when the chemicals went down and uh, we could also control our costs. And then uh, ultimately we bought an air blast sprayer, an old used air blast sprayer, because for 18 acres, buying a, a new one would just be cost prohibitive. So we found one on Craigslist that uh, another farmer who was upgrading uh, had for sale and 
we bought that and, and it's all pretty much almost paid for itself now after about three years, because for us, it's, I don't know what the prices are now per acre, but at the time we were paying, you know, 400 to $500 to have somebody come out and spray every time they sprayed. And then it was on their schedule, not on our schedule. And so, you know, I would say a backhoe, a tractor, a, a ground sprayer and an air blast sprayer. That's really the only equipment we have now, other than that we, we did go through the San Joaquin Valley Air Pollution Control District, and they had grants for electric vehicles. And so this was a Polaris electric vehicle that we could use out in the orchard to do maintenance and drive through the orchard and check irrigation sprinkler heads and do pruning and pick up trash and those types of things. So we were able to, to get one of those. So that was another piece of equipment that we had. And going through that grant program was an excellent way to do it. Honestly, they pay for most of it. Well, I wanted to pause right here real quick because I think this is an area that Alec really excels in. From all of his time in the Air Force, he learned how to navigate bureaucratic processes. In addition to this electric vehicle grant, he also received a grant through the CDFA for compost to improve his soil a sweep grant to improve his irrigation system and install an automated soil moisture system and weather station, and he's not stopping there. At the time of our conversation, he was waiting to hear back on an NRCS grant and was considering applying for another one for cover crops and bee forage. So if you just understand that all of these organizations have a bureaucracy to them, and you just have to basically do your research, take your time, cross your T's, dot your I's, make sure that the paperwork is filled out properly and read the fine print and put in exactly what it is they're asking for, then you can generally get the grant approved or at least have a good chance at getting it approved. So I learned about that at one of the research items that we do is pre-COVID, the Almond Board of California, through their outreach program, hosted in-field workshops constantly. Now they're doing them on webinars, which is nice because you can do it from home while you're having a cup of coffee. But the infield was really beneficial because you can sit and talk to other almond farmers and, and folks face to face, which, and there's just no, no replacement for that. But uh, that's where we learned about that program when the director of that particular grant program came and gave us a short presentation. And then we went back and did the research online and uh, pulled up the paperwork, filled it out. Uh, we happened to have an old quad sitting around that we didn't need because you have to be able to turn in a piece of equipment. The whole point is to reduce CO2 emissions and carbon emissions. So you have to turn in something that uh, actually was running. Or actually, I don't even think it had to be running, but you had to turn in another piece of equipment. And so we went through that whole process, and then we were able to uh, purchase the electric vehicle. Well, if there's somebody listening out there that thinks, you know, they may want to do what you did and, and kind of get started with, with 20 or fewer acres, you know, what would be your number one piece of advice other than what we've obviously been sharing this whole time? What I would tell you, and I have, have a few, so about three or four. So let me, I'll just tell you kind of what we think about that. One is, you know, preparation and research is essential. You have to do the research up front. You have to do the preparation up front. And the idea that you're going into this, if you're starting from scratch, it's a 20 to 25-year investment. So the money that you're putting into it now, you're going to amortize over 20 or 25 years. So you can't 
look at it as just money you're going to spend in one year and not get a return on it. So you have to really do a lot of research. You have to be very, very flexible. Like I had mentioned to you before, the, uh, California is a highly regulated state. It's difficult to do business in California for a lot of folks. The climate change issues, the water issues are all going to be challenges as, as we move forward, and not just for almond farmers, but for anybody that's in the ag business. So you really, you really have to be flexible when you're moving forward and try and anticipate as much as you can how you might deal with some of those things. There's a lot of paths to success in farming. There's not one right answer. Every farm and every location has its own challenges depending on where you happen to be. So you have to take all the information that, that you can find, whether it's from the almond board, whether it's from other farmers, whether it's from your PCA. And I would tell you, having a, a PCA you trust is, is critical. But you have to take all that information and make decisions that you feel are best. And sometimes the right decision may not be the one you take because you can't, you know, from a cost-benefit perspective, it doesn't work. So you have to look at each one of those. I'd say many paths to success. Try and look at the cost-benefit as much as you can. And the biggest reward probably is the fact that if you take a, a piece of ground that's a barren piece of ground and you turn it into a viable orchard, that's very rewarding to see that. And then to have people come by and say, wow, you've got a really nice looking orchard. It makes you feel good. Uh, that's great. Alec, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you for, for sharing you know, all of this. Anything else, though, that we didn't get to that you were hoping to talk about or anything you want to just add before I let you go? So just to, to reiterate, there's a lot of resources out there for farmers. And you know, the Almond Board does a super job with all of the information that they provide and their webinars and the, the hopefully we'll go back to in-orchard meetings at some point in time. The California Almond Sustainability Program, I did not get a chance to mention that before, but that is sponsored through the Almond Board and it's an excellent resource. It's multiple modules that, that farmers can go through and you basically answer questions about how you operate. And then it will tell you whether you're doing what other farmers are doing or you're doing something a little bit different. And then you can use that to baseline your operation and try and make improvements. So I, we've used that extensively to try and improve our operation. UC Davis has just loads of resources out there with regards to integrated pest management program, almond orchards in general, the San Joaquin and the Merced County Farm Advisors are, are useful. So those folks are, are great to talk to. There's a lot of professional reading out there that you can do, a lot of professional publications and magazines. So there's no one place for all of these resources. You just have to do a little bit of work to look for them, but there's a ton of help out there. When Once you find it, people are always willing to help you. Well, thank you very much to Alec Earl for sharing his experiences with starting from scratch to establishing his orchard and his business. In addition to his research skills and ability to find these grants, as well as his advice for brand new people to the industry, I'm sure many of you found his irrigation management approach interesting. And we've got some additional tips related to irrigation to share on today's ABC Update. Well, you've already heard in today's episode about using things like soil moisture probes and pressure chambers for irrigation scheduling. 
Almond Board Senior Manager for Field Outreach and Education, Tom Duvall, says there's an even more basic problem that many growers could stand to pay a little bit more attention to, and that's cleaning and maintenance of irrigation systems. We really started discovering when we were doing distribution uniformity testing, you know, we want to see how evenly we irrigate across the field or the orchard. The most common challenge or problem that was causing poor uniformity was system maintenance related. It wasn't irrigation design or rarely do we actually find structural challenges with the irrigation system. It's just that they're not being maintained. And honestly, it's hard. We're all busy. We've got a lot to do, but it's very important. It makes a really big difference. And it comes right down to the bottom line. Things like cleaning out the riser screens and the washers at your riser tees. If you have screens in those washers, they get organic matter building up in them. And then they shut down the pressure. If you're using drip or micro, you're not putting out as much water as you think you are. And you don't really see that. So it's something where you got to go through and check those things. Other areas is how frequently you flush your hose ends to make sure that debris that's built up in your irrigation lines is flushed out. You know, maybe once a month, depending on what kind of water quality you have. But that's something that gets overlooked. It's kind of like none of us like to go to the dentist. When we do go and they ask us, do we floss? Of course, we all say we floss, but most of us don't. And I think the irrigation system is similar to that. As Tom mentioned, staying on top of this important task really does hit the bottom line, especially in a year like this one. This of all years, with the costs of inputs are really high this year. This is a year you don't want to be losing the value of your inputs or having to overapply because you're trying to um, get more water out. This is the year to really watch it. Starting at the pump, it's not just the irrigation system, but making sure that your pump panel's been serviced, that you're not going to have your pump go down in the middle of the season when it's an emergency, but have somebody come out and service your pump panel at the start of the season. So it's not just the irrigation. For more information about this or really any of the topics we discuss here on this podcast, reach out directly to the Almond Board's field outreach team at fieldoutreach at almondboard.com. They'll be glad to follow up with you and connect you with any resources you might need. We here at the Almond Journey podcast believe everyone in the almond industry has a story of their own of how they're making things work on their farms or in their jobs. Hearing the voices of industry leaders may spark a connection or an idea that you can use in your own journey. And that's why we want to feature these stories of innovation, resilience, and community here on this podcast. I hope you'll come along for the ride by subscribing to this show on your podcast platform of choice, be it Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, etc. I think we're on all of them. And please pass this show along to others in the industry so we can all share in this almond journey together.